You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. I know I'm guilty and I'm proud. I know I'm guilty. Sing it louder and don't try to tell me any lies. Cause you don't fool me with your jive. I'm singing insubordination. What now? Insubordination. Help me now. Insubordination. Uh, Insubordination. Well now, I don't want nobody over me, do you? I don't need nobody under me. I don't need nobody under me. Well, and I'm gonna tell it like it's got to be. I'm gonna tell it like it's got to be. And that you better have a little respect for me. You better have a little respect for me. I'm saying, hey, Welcome, my friends. Hey, Welcome hey, to another edition hey, of the Corbett hey, Report. Hey, I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 8th day of November, 2009. I'd like to welcome all of my listeners back to the Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to visit the websites, CorbettReport.com, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and ReportageBook.com, and also to support the various affiliates and websites that help broadcast the Corbett Report, including KROCKS Radio 1 at ZeroPointRadio.com, RadioForAll.net, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, and, of course, Archive.org, where you can access backup copies of the past 37 episodes in the event that you can't connect to the Corbett Report's server. I'd also like to encourage my listeners once again to subscribe to our various RSS feeds. If you're interested in staying up to date with all of the various updates that are going on constantly to the website, or, of course, check back to the CorbettReport.com website frequently throughout the week in order to make sure that you're up to date with all of the latest news and information. And now, without further ado, let's get into today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from the Dow Jones Newswires via Nasdaq.com, 6th of November 2009. Second gunman in custody at Army's Fort Hood. A second gunman is in custody after a shooting at the Army's Fort Hood in Texas, in which at least seven people were killed and 12 wounded, reports KCEN-TV of Waco. The report comes about two hours after a first suspect was captured, shortly after gunfire broke out. Today's second real news story comes from The Raw Story, 7th of November 2009. True U.S. unemployment rate stands at 17.5%. According to figures released by the Department of Labor, the real marker of American unemployment stands at 17.5% a figure which takes into account underemployed workers and those who have not sought work in the last four weeks, according to a published report. If statistics went back so far, the measure would almost certainly be at its highest level since the Great Depression, reporter David Leonhardt wrote in Friday's edition of the New York Times. The report continued, In all, more than one out of every six workers, 17.5%, were unemployed or underemployed in October, 
The previous recorded high was 17.1% in December 1982. Today's third real news story is also from The Raw Story, November 4th, 2009. Global Treaty could throw file sharers off internet after three strikes. Leaked details of the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement being negotiated in secret by most of the world's largest economies suggest internet file sharers could be blocked from accessing the internet if they are repeatedly accused of sharing copyrighted material, say media and digital rights watchdogs. And the worst-case scenario could see popular websites like YouTube and Flickr shut down because of a provision in the treaty that would force them to monitor everything uploaded to the site for copyright violations. Internet law professor Michael Geist published details of leaked portions of the discussions on ACTA on his blog Tuesday as a new round of ACTA negotiations began in Seoul, South Korea. The U.S., along with all countries of the European Union, as well as Japan, Canada, Australia, and a handful of other countries, are involved in the negotiations. Today's next real news story comes from the Canadian press via Yahoo News, 4th of November 2009. Vote to kill gun registry wins approval in principle with help of Liberals, NDP. The national debate over gun control that many Canadians thought had been resolved a decade ago has roared back to life after the House of Commons voted in principle Wednesday to end the long gun registry. The minority conservative government got help from 12 new Democrats, 8 liberals, and 1 independent to easily pass a bill that would kill the registry, expunge records on more than 7 million firearms, and plow under a $1 billion taxpayer investment. The 164 to 137 vote in favor of Bill C-391 is a big victory for the Tories who have been fighting for years to end what they call a wasteful, inefficient registry. Today's next real news story comes via PRWeb.com, 3rd of November 2009. Author says G20 meeting in Scotland this week about dumping U.S. dollar. Best-selling author Daniel Estulin states that the key issue to be discussed this week at the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors meeting being held in St. Andrews, Scotland, is how to bring down the present world financial system through dumping the U.S. dollar. Estulin first reported on this initiative as being deliberated in the most recent Bilderberg meeting held in Greece in May 2009. Estulin says that the success or failure of this callous plan hinges on the ability of the U.S. and U.K. representatives to convince the Russian, the Chinese, and other national governments to go along with their scheme. Today's final real news story comes from BBC News, 3rd of November 2009. Czech court clears Lisbon Treaty. The Czech Constitutional Court has ruled that the Lisbon Treaty is in line with the Constitution, clearing the way for President Václav Klaus to sign it. The Czech Republic is the only EU member yet to ratify the treaty, and the decision removes the penultimate hurdle to its passage. The Eurosceptic Mr. Klaus, who was awaiting the court's decision, has said he will not further oppose the treaty. The treaty was drawn up to streamline decision-making in the 27-member body. Its supporters say it will allow the bloc to operate more efficiently and give it greater influence in world affairs. Critics say it will cede too many national powers to Brussels.
I want to welcome you all, every one of you. We have no secrets. Let us begin by being clear about General Smuts' new law. All Indians must now be fingerprinted, like criminals, men and women. No marriage other than a Christian marriage is considered valid. Under this act, our wives and mothers are whores, and every man here is a bastard. He has become quite good at this. And a policeman passing an Indian dwelling, huh, I will not call them homes, may enter and demand the card of any Indian woman whose dwelling it is. Understand? He does not have to stand at the door. He may enter. I will not allow Swear to Allah, I'll kill the man who offers that insult to my home and my wife, and let them hang me. I say, talk means nothing. Kill a few officials before they disgrace one Indian woman. Then they might think twice about such laws. In that cause, I would be willing to die. I praise such courage. I need such courage because in this cause I too am prepared to die. But my friend, there is no cause for which I am prepared to kill. Whatever they do to us, we will attack no one, kill no one. But we will not give our fingerprints, not one of us. They will imprison us, they will fine us, they will seize our possessions, but they cannot take away our self-respect if we do not give it to them. Have you been to prison? They beat us and torture us. I say they beat us. I am asking you to fight. To fight against their anger, not to provoke it. We will not strike a blow. But we will receive them, and through our pain, we will make them see their injustice, and it will hurt, as all fighting hurts. But we cannot lose. We cannot. They may torture my body, break my bones, even kill me. Then. They will have my dead body, not my obedience. Welcome, my friends, to episode 107 of the Corbett Report. Lessons in Resistance, Non-Compliance 
As the New World Order agenda kicks into hyperdrive and begins to reveal itself to the world, it is becoming increasingly apparent to even the most politically apathetic of observers that we are entering some of the most serious and potentially world-changing times in modern political history. The issues we are facing are many and of the utmost gravity. From the rise of the police state to the construction of the Panopticon, from the G20-led New World Financial Order takeover, to the ever-present threat of false flag terrorism and the start of the Third World War, we can no longer afford to sit on the sidelines while these world-changing events are taking place before our very eyes. Of course, that's part of the entire reason for existence of this website and this podcast and all of the work that I've been doing over the past few years. But the question is, what can be done by the average person to effectively counteract these moves towards total global tyranny? This is not a trivial question, nor is it a simple one to answer. Indeed, as I've stressed many times, the New World Order was not created overnight, nor will it be destroyed overnight, and we need collectively to stop waiting for some apocalyptic moment to signal the birth of the New World Order, and to realize that it is already here, already being constructed around us, and that the time to take action is now or never. But what action to take? Of course, there are many ways to answer that question. But of all of the answers that are coming from the various members of the truth movement, perhaps the most level-headed, reasonable, and, I would say, effective response came earlier this year from David Icke. Um, and what we mustn't do, I would suggest, is violently riot. Because that, because of the control, the military control systems in place waiting to be played, if, if people violently riot, then it's like saying, I've got all the aces here, because I've got all the numbers, and, 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 and far more numbers than, than the controlling force has. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to violently riot, and what I'm going to do, therefore, is I'm going to hand you all the bloody aces for you to say, we have to put the military on the streets, we have to uh, 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 do this, and we have to do that, because of all this rioting. We don't need to riot. If you are standing there holding up this construct control structure, which is what we are, administering it, enforcing it through uniform professions and acquiescing to it as the mass of the people, you don't have to riot to bring the freaking system down. You have to stop cooperating with it. Boom! Gone. No violence necessary. And that's what we need to understand, because there are going to be agent provocateurs who are putting out, being put out there in numbers to start the rioting, and if the, if the, if the uh, unaware just lock into that, and this violence uh, occurs in, in reaction to these things that are planned, then, um, like I say, we, the, the aces are going to be handed to the system. We need to be streetwise, canny, realize the points in the system which depend on us and remove our um, acquiescence and remove our cooperation. If we don't cooperate, the system cannot function. That's the power. Not rioting violently, refusing to cooperate.
And that is what will bring the system down. And um, we're at the point now where we need to start doing it very fast. We need to go from head in the sand to that guy in China looking the tank in the eye very, very quickly. Um, but we can do it. It's just a choice. The points that David Icke make in that interview are, in one sense, extremely simple, but in another sense are extremely important to understand in their full depth, complexity, and implications. If opponents of the New World Order system today began a violent uprising against individual acts of tyranny, that would self-evidently only play into the New World Order system's own hands, because the deck is stacked against such violent resistance, with complete control over the media and a still a staggering control over public perception of all incidents, such violent uprising can easily be spun as the very domestic terrorism which the entire New World Order system is being set up to contain. It only further propagates the entire matrix of control. But it is that much harder for the controlled corporate media to spin the situation when there is a mass political protest movement that is organized around not cooperating with self-evidently tyrannical systems. A perfect example of that occurred just in the past several weeks when healthcare workers in New York State organized a mass protest movement against a directive from New York State requiring that all healthcare workers be vaccinated with both seasonal flu and swine flu vaccines. The protest movement was covered even in the controlled corporate media, and eventually the state Supreme Court ruled that the directive had to be scrapped. This is a key tool in understanding how to undermine and eventually dismantle all of the systems of control under which we are placed. But if this idea doesn't sound new to you, that's because it isn't. I feel that killing is a very tragic way to deal with any social problem. There is no violent solution to the problem that the Negro confronts in this country. And this is why I have constantly said that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. After all, the Negro ends up uh, on the losing end. We can't win a violent revolution. Most of the persons killed in riots are Negroes themselves. Uh, the persons who end up not being able to get uh, milk for their children of Negroes uh, because things where they have to live are destroyed. So there's no uh, practical or moral answer uh, in the realm of violence to the Negroes' problem. As I'm sure my listeners are aware, there is a line of historical continuity that connects the idea of nonviolent noncompliance to men like Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi. Indeed, there is a rich vein of history of non-violent non-compliance being used to bring down vast tyrannical structures. And perhaps the examples of King and Gandhi are particularly illustrative in this regard. So let's flesh out the idea of non-violent non-compliance and its utility for a freedom movement. And let's look specifically at the example of Martin Luther King Jr., Let's listen to a short clip from Against the Grain, a program on Pacifica Radio KPFA. And we'll go back to the January 16th, 2006 edition of this program in which host C.S. Sung talked to Claiborne Carson about Martin Luther King Jr.'s idea of nonviolent noncompliance and what it could achieve. 
You have pointed to a memorandum that King wrote in late 1956 in which he outlines his idea of nonviolence, uh, which you say he pretty much followed and carried for the rest of his life. What kinds of principles did King articulate in this memo? Well, I, I'm trying to think of the one you're, you're referring to. It probably, um, if you're talking about late 56, uh, right at the end of the Montgomery bus boycott, he was going through a number of changes. At the beginning of the boycott, for example, he applies for a gun permit. And, uh, you know, it's only after he begins to uh, meet with people like uh, Bayard Rustin and, um, and others who had been long-time Gandhians that he really gets a deeper understanding of, of Gandhian principles. Um, and so it's, it's in the context of actually participating in a struggle that he develops many of his insights. And I think that's what makes them so powerful, is that, uh, is that it wasn't like he came to, it, uh, came to the movement with a, a set of preformed ideas, but he really tested these ideas, um, tested all of his doubts uh, in the crucible of a movement. And by the end of it, I think he, he understands that, that it, it, it is a powerful me- method uh, in fact, he describes it as the uh, um, the most powerful method available to oppressed people. To me, the the essence of of what his message is is that it an, it's an answer to the question: How do oppressed people or people without a lot of resources liberate themselves? That's an important question, particularly in the 20th century, when you have many people around the world striving for their freedom, for their liberation, against far more powerful forces arrayed against them. And I think it's King and Gandhi who speak to the needs of those people and say that you can turn what seems to be your weakness into a strength through this method. I understand that sometimes, given the immensity of what we are facing, the idea that something as simple as using our own apparent weakness of being wage slaves for a corporate-controlled system based on fiat money created out of nothing by the financial oligarchs is difficult to conceive. How can we use that weakness to our own effect? Well, once again, we can turn to the examples of history to see how tyranny has been successfully beaten back and sometimes even beaten down through nonviolent non-cooperation with the system, using that system's own momentum against itself. And one very good example of that is, of course, the Montgomery bus boycott, which was, of course, supported by Dr. King. A good overview of this example of resistance can be found at AfricanOnline.com, where they describe the Montgomery bus boycott in this manner. Quote, In December 1955, 42,000 black residents of Montgomery began a year-long boycott of city buses to protest radically segregated seating. After 381 days of taking taxis, carpooling, and walking the hostile streets of Montgomery, African Americans eventually won their fight to desegregate seating on public buses not only in Montgomery, but throughout the United States. The protest was first organized by the Women's Political Council as a one-day boycott to coincide with the trial of Rosa Parks, who had been arrested on December 1, 1955, for refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a segregated Montgomery bus. 
By the next morning, the council, led by Joanne Robinson, had printed 52,000 flyers asking Montgomery blacks to stay off public buses on December 5th, the day of the trial. Meanwhile, labor activist Edie Nixon, who had bailed Parks out of jail, notified Ralph Abernathy, minister of the First Baptist Church, and Martin Luther King Jr., the new minister at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, of Parks' arrest. A group of about 50 black leaders and one white minister, Robert Grates, gathered in the basement of King's Church to endorse the boycott and begin planning a massive rally for the evening of the trial. Grates offered his support from the pulpit of his predominantly white Lutheran church. The Montgomery chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which had been looking for a test case for segregation, began preparing for the legal challenge. On the morning of Parks' trial, buses rumbled nearly empty through the streets of Montgomery, Police officers with shotguns roamed in search of imaginary Negro goon squads who they believed were forcing blacks to stay off the buses. After Parks lost her case and was convicted of violating the segregated seating laws, black leaders met again to organize an extension of the bus boycott. To this end, they formed the Montgomery Improvement Association and elected King as its president. That evening, 7,000 blacks crowded into the Holt Street Baptist Church, where King inspired the audience with his words. There comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. With this speech, King was able to spark the black residents' collective outrage into a grassroots movement that would sustain the boycott. The Montgomery bus boycott followed King's credo of nonviolent resistance even in the face of a police crackdown and attempts by white supremacists to undermine the protest. Montgomery police threatened to arrest taxi drivers, giving discount rates to the black riders. And when the MIA arranged carpools, the police systematically harassed drivers, arresting them for allegedly going too fast or too slow. Even as the protesters and black leaders were confronted with escalating violence, they maintained both nonviolent resistance and their exhausting day-to-day schedule without public transportation. At the same time, the MIA moved ahead on the legal front. On February 1st, 1956, shortly after a bomb went off in King's home, the MIA filed a federal suit against bus segregation in the names of four black women. In June, a federal court ruled segregated seating unconstitutional, and the case went on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Meanwhile, King and the MIA leadership went to the Montgomery court to try to stave off an injunction against the carpools. They were in court when they were handed a notice from the Associated Press Wire announcing the Supreme Court decision that ruled segregated seating on public buses unconstitutional. King addressed a euphoric crowd that night, and over the next week, celebrities such as singer Mahalia Jackson and New York minister Gardner C. Taylor came to Montgomery to celebrate. On December 20, 1956, when the federal ruling took effect, an integrated group of Montgomery bus boycott supporters, including King, Abernathy, Fred Gray, and Glenn Smiley, rode the city buses. The Montgomery bus boycott had implications that reached far beyond the desegregation of public buses. The protest propelled the civil rights movement into national consciousness and Martin Luther King Jr. into the public eye. In the words of King, we have gained a new sense of dignity and destiny. We have discovered a new and powerful weapon, nonviolent resistance. 
end quote. Organized mass movements of non-cooperation can yield changes to the system. And perhaps one of the greatest lessons of Montgomery is that organized resistance, even on something that appears to be one particular peripheral issue or only one issue in a larger scheme, can in fact topple that entire system of control. That once the people are organized and motivated and working together towards the goal of non-cooperation with systems of tyranny, that tyranny must fall because it is based on those people cooperating. So how does this relate to our position today? Well, if it worked so well for the American Civil Rights Movement, could it work for us? Could we implement a boycott of the New World Order? Of course, the success of such a scheme would depend on knowing what to boycott and how to do so in an effective manner. And I don't claim to be a leader of any such movement or the person who's going to figure out exactly what way to take action. All I know is that if each of us resists and refuses to cooperate with tyranny at every possibility and at every chance, then the system cannot survive. Well, what are some of the ways that we can press back against this system? Well, it can be extremely simple things, things that we wouldn't even think of as a form of resistance, and yet it can be a powerful way to refuse to cooperate with the system. As we know, the New World Order is an overarching system of tyranny that seeks to put centralized, non-democratic control over every facet of our lives. So any facet of our lives is potentially a point of resistance. Here's an example. This comes from a very well-researched article called ID Cards, A World View by Nathan Allenby from globalresearch.ca, which was published on August 31st of this year. This article deals with a subject that we've talked about before on the Corbett Report, that being RFID and the implementation of ID cards as a form of control. But it points out an important way in which this type of technology is gradually inserted into our lives in ways that many of us never even think about. This comes from a heading in the article, ID cards, loyalty cards. Quote, Let's not talk about a police state, Let's talk about supermarket loyalty cards. There isn't much difference between them in terms of technology, and modern ID cards seem to be close descendants of loyalty cards intended for a similar purpose, gathering information about people. To be able to track someone, first you need to identify them. Corporations want to know as much as they can about their customers for marketing purposes and have made an incredible investment in infrastructure for gathering and analyzing data about them. By 2004, Walmart had gathered 460 terabytes of information about customers or more than twice the total information on the internet. Where did this data come from? The majority from loyalty cards. Governments have adopted electronic ID cards because stores have demonstrated what powerful and effective technology they are. Not merely effective, but cost-effective. Unlike defense equipment, such as those missiles that sometimes don't really work, commercial sector technology has to work and to pay for itself. Stores have demonstrated they can track and profile their customers to find their spending habits, their weaknesses, and suggestibility, what advertising works on them. The technology they use not only had to prove it could work, but also that it could pay for itself. 
If supermarket corporations invest as much as they do, you know the technology has to be very effective. Powerful and effective software has been developed for analyzing stores' loyalty card data, such as ChoicePoint and LexisNexis. Now we find some of those systems in use at the FBI to shortlist suspects. Governments have realized that this same profiling technology works and can also be applied to finding terrorists, extremists, political dissidents, or any other category of interest to the state. Some of those companies also help in data gathering. When the U.S. government obtained personal data about voters in 11 different Latin American states for unspecified purposes, that data was obtained by private corporations, including ChoicePoint. It has been reported that the majority of U.S. intelligence data gathering is outsourced and that about 70% of the budget goes to private corporations. Although the majority of this spending goes to military defense corporations such as SAIC and Booz Allen Hamilton, consumer corporations also take their place. Do we see an evolving symbiosis between government and private corporations where they share technology and tools and cooperate in data gathering? End quote. I suggest my listeners read that article in its entirety, of course, because it does contain a great deal of information about ID cards and their implementation around the world, including a very handy list of countries which have implemented or are implementing RFID-based identification cards. But at the end of that article, Allenby suggests some very simple ways in which people can help resist this encroaching tyranny, and perhaps the simplest of them is his rejoinder to don't use cards, use cash. As I'm sure my listeners are well aware, there is a cashless society control grid being slotted into place, whereby the entire economy is being digitized, and thus centralized, data-based, and ultimately put under the hands of a very few elite who control the financial system itself. Every move, every transaction, everything you do in such a system will be trackable and traceable, and perhaps most horrifying of all, once cash has been completely eliminated from the planet, the financial oligarchs will have the ultimate control over the people, the ability to stop people from resisting their system by simply turning off the credits of those who are resisting their system. To that end, we see cash alternatives being stressed in more and more places and more and more businesses, and we actually see cash being refused in more and more situations. Something as simple as using cash can be a form of resistance to this system. Or better yet, look into the idea of community currencies, through which we can truly start affecting change of the economic system and taking control of the economy back into our own hands. Or if we want to boycott the New World Order, how about boycotting the unelected non-governmental central banks to which the majority of people in the world pay their taxes? Tax resistance is, of course, a very old idea going all the way back to Thoreau, whose classic essay, Civil Disobedience, is a must-read on that subject. And there are many organizations, groups, and activists carrying on that idea including, of course, the war tax boycott. Another devastatingly effective form of resistance through nonviolent non-cooperation with the system 
is represented in groups like Oathkeepers at oathkeepers.org. Oathkeepers is a particularly good example of this type of organization because it is an organization which is specifically not based on getting everyone to agree to some ideology of politics or religion or other potentially contentious issues. It's a nonpartisan association of people serving in the military, the reserves, the National Guard, peace officers, firefighters, veterans, anyone who has sworn an oath to support and defend the U.S. Constitution. And the entire organization is based simply on the idea that those members who are part of the organization will not go against any orders that contradict their oath to go against the U.S. Constitution. It is merely a reaffirmation of an oath they have already sworn. This organization is particularly important because anyone who knows what's really going on knows that the police and the military are merely enforcement arms for global tyranny that's being enacted on behalf of international financial oligarchs. Our enemy is not the police. Our enemy is not the military. It's the people who are directing the system. That's why we have to win the info war for people's hearts and minds to turn them against supporting that system, because without the cooperation of the police and the military in implementing orders that go against, for example, the U.S. Constitution, tyranny will not have a leg to stand on, at least not until they fully implement the systems that they're racing to bring in right now that will see the complete mechanization of the military. As long as there is a human component to the enforcement of tyranny, we can resist by not cooperating. Or if you are not in the police or the military or another enforcement arm of the globalist bankers, you can be informing those people about organizations like Oath Keepers, and we can begin effecting real change. It's important to understand that this is not a radical idea, and it is not without its historical precedence either. The little heralded but very important story of resistors of the war in Vietnam among the GIs themselves was told very well in a 2005 documentary entitled Sir No Sir at sirnosir.com, a website which also has tools that activists can use to help wake up members of the military and encourage them to resist and dissent illegal wars of occupation. Let's listen to a short extract from Sir No Sir on the power of the GI movement against the war in Vietnam. This was Armed Forces Day, and in many cities across the country, there were the usual parades, displays, and bands. But the recent surge of protest over the war in Indochina cast a shadow over today's activities. This was even true at some military bases where the presence of anti-war demonstrators led to the cancellation of planned observances. A thousand GIs marched the first year right outside the base. And they told people it was off limits, and they told people that if you went there, you were going to get arrested. The store owners downtown were putting up plywood coverings on their windows because the cops told them it was going to turn into a riot. But then people decided to change it to Armed Farces Day because, you know, we uh, thought making fun of your enemy was as valuable as yelling at him. The second year, 1971, there had to be three, 4,000 on the streets. By every conceivable indicator, our army that now remains in Vietnam 
is in a state approaching collapse, with individual units avoiding or having refused combat, murdering their officers and non-commissioned officers, drug-ridden and dispirited, were not near mutinous. By the Pentagon's own figures, during the 10 years of the Vietnam War, 500,000 soldiers deserted. In the face of a determined enemy, an unprecedented anti-war movement, and a military near collapse, the Nixon administration announced the policy of Vietnamization, an effort to shift the burden of combat to the South Vietnamese Army while American jets bombarded North Vietnam from the skies. Nixon promised that American ground troops would no longer be involved in offensive combat. While denying that the GI movement even existed, the House Internal Security Committee of the United States Congress held a series of hearings in 1971 that produced thousands of pages of testimony illustrating how broadly and deeply that movement had spread. That same year, the FTA show toured Asia. Despite being banned from military bases worldwide, the show performed in Japan, Okinawa, and the Philippines for over 60,000 soldiers and at every stop, GIs took the stage with them. We can no longer remain silent about the atrocities and injustice being perpetrated by the United States military and peoples of other nations, nor the petty harassment that servicemen and women are made to endure day after day. We demand an end to all discriminating policies against persons because of their race. We demand an end to all discrimination against persons such as anti-war GIs because they do not agree with U.S. policies. We demand an immediate, immediate and total withdrawal of all air and ground troops and CIA from Vietnam, as well as from Korea, Guam, Okinawa, Japan, the Philippines, Israel, Cambodia, Thailand, Germany, England, Panama, Guantanamo Bay. I mean, it seems unthinkable now that we could have done this, and that you could have a hall full of guys with their fists in the air, so happy that we had come to acknowledge the reality. I read that you took a stand and refused to kill in Vietnam. You said no man was your enemy. If what he's fighting for is to be free. I used to love to watch the faces of the GIs when she sang that. It was like this shell of tension would drop away and you would see the youth and the innocence and the vulnerability underneath. But soldier, we love you. Yeah, soldier, we love you. Standing strong, cause it's hard to do. What do you know you must do? Cause it's true. Yes, it's true. In April of 1971, just five years after Howard Levy and Donald Duncan's lone acts of protest, thousands of Vietnam veterans against the war converged on Washington, D.C. and threw their medals onto the Capitol steps. We don't want to fight anymore, but if we have to fight again, it'll be to take these steps. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a unique 
opportunity. It's very, it's very rare, I think, in, in anybody's life that you have an opportunity to really think that you are changing history, that you're a part of history. At first, they couldn't believe GIs were protesting the war. That, that, that blew their minds. When we had a thousand GIs in 1970, they thought, they, they didn't know how to react to that because they thought, yeah, well, a bunch of them, they go down there and they're probably all just talking, but how many of them are there? I really learned so much. You know, just spending day after day after day, you know, just people talking about, you know, what's it all about and how are we going to deal with this stuff and, and how are we really going to move it forward and change the world. That's what everybody wanted to do, of course. We wanted to change the world. We were pretty sure this sucked. You know, we were pretty sure none of us deserved to be here. And so that didn't leave much room but to change the world. Thankfully, that same spirit of resistance lives on even today, even as the illegal wars of occupation continue all around the world there are still those who are willing to stand up and say, Sir, no, sir. A sterling example of that same resistance to tyranny and non-cooperation with systems of control comes from Aaron Watada, a first lieutenant in the United States Army who refused to deploy to Iraq in June 2006. He was court-martial for his refusing to act in February of 2007, but in August of 2006, he gave a speech at the Veterans for Peace 2006 National Convention, and I think it's worth listening to. Once again, you can find all the documentation on the documentation list under today's episode on the CorbettReport.com homepage. But right now, let's listen to Lieutenant Aaron Watada talking about the modern spirit of resistance and non-cooperation. Thank you, everyone, very much. And thank you all for your tremendous support. How honored and delighted I am to be in the same room with you tonight. I am deeply humbled by the company of the other wonderful speakers that came before me. You are all true American patriots. Although long since out of uniform, you continue to fight for the very same principles you once swore to uphold and defend. No one knows the devastation and suffering of war more than the veterans, which is why we should always be the first to prevent it. I wasn't entirely sure what to say tonight. I thought, as a leader in general, I should speak to motivate. Now I know that this isn't the military, and surely there are many out there who outrank me, and at one point or another, and yes, I am just an LT. <laughs> Yet I feel as though we are all citizens of this great country, and what I have to say is not a matter of authority, but from one citizen to another. We have all seen this war tear apart our country over the past three years, it seems as though nothing we've done from vigils to protests to letters to Congress have had any effect in persuading the powers that be. Tonight, I would like to speak to you about an idea for a change of strategy. I'm here tonight because I took a leap of faith. My action is not the first and it certainly will not be the last. Yet on behalf of those who follow, I require your help, your sacrifice, and that of countless other Americans. I may fail, we all may fail, but nothing we have tried has worked so far. It is time for change, and the change starts with all of us. I stand before you today not as an expert, not as one who pretends to have all the answers. I am simply an American and a servant of the American people. My humble opinions today are just that. I realize that you may not agree with everything I have to say, However, I did not choose to be a leader to be popular. 
I did it to serve and make better the soldiers of this country. And I swore to carry out this charge honorably under the rule of law. Today I speak with you about a radical idea. It is one born from the very concept of the American soldier or the service member. It became instrumental in ending the Vietnam War, but it has long been since forgotten. The idea is this, that to stop an illegal and unjust war, the soldiers and service members can choose to stop fighting it. Now, it is not an easy task for the soldier, for he or she must be aware that they are being used for ill gain. They must hold themselves responsible for individual action. They must remember duty to the Constitution and the people supersedes the ideologies of their leadership. The soldier must be willing to face ostracism by their peers, worry over the survival of their families, and of course, the loss of personal freedom. They must know that resisting an authoritarian government at home is equally important to fighting a foreign aggressor on the battlefield. Finally, those wearing the uniform must know beyond any shadow of a doubt that by refusing immoral and illegal orders, they will be supported by the people not with mere words, but by action. The American soldier must rise above the socialization that tells them authority should always be obeyed without question. Ranks should be respected but never blindly followed. Amen. Awareness of the history of atrocities and destruction committed in the name of America, either through direct military intervention or by proxy war, is crucial. They must realize that this is a war not out of self-defense, but by choice, for profit and imperialistic domination. Amen. WMD, ties to Al-Qaeda, and ties to 9-11 never existed, and they never will. The soldier, must know, the soldier must know that our narrowly and questionably elected officials intentionally manipulated the evidence presented to Congress. Soldier or officer, when we swear our oath, it is first and foremost to the Constitution and its protectorate, the people. If soldiers realize this war is contrary to what the Constitution extols, if they stood up and threw their weapons down, no president could ever again initiate a war of choice. Now, it hardly needs to be said just how effective a genuine grassroots citizen activist movement of loosely connected individuals who are connected only by the common bond of refusing to go along with tyranny just how effective such a movement could be in bringing down all of the tyrannical stru structures which we are unfortunately being placed into as we speak. And precisely because we as people, by simply refusing to go along with the system, have such power within our grasp, there's no doubt that the powers that be will do anything in their power to stop such a movement from happening. 
As David Icke pointed out in that clip that we listened to at the beginning of the episode, the agent provocateur will always come along to try to goad people into violent acts, which are only going to serve to further increase the tyranny and control of the police state and justify its existence. They'll also try any type of intimidation they can to try to convince you that if you speak out in any way, then you're going to be put on a list. And they have lists, and they're accruing lists, and they want us to know that they have lists. And MediaMonarchy.com just put up this headline on November 1st. FBI says 400,000 people on watch list. 1,600 names suggested a day. Or we have recent reports from the UK out of The Guardian on the 25th of October. How police rebranded lawful protest as domestic extremism. And we know that the US Army is now giving refresher training courses. And in order to pass those refresher training courses, DOD members will have to answer a multiple choice question, which includes... Which of the following is an example of low-level terrorism activity? And of course, the answer is protests. And we know that even when the indoctrination starts to fail and people start to see through such open steps towards total tyranny, they will simply ratchet up the police state and try to shut down dissent in any way they can. Which is why we have to be fully aware of the gravity of the situation and why we are in the situation we're in. Without an understanding of that, there can be no true commitment to really bring down the system. There are a million stories that could be pointed out here, but perhaps a personal story will suffice. When I started the Corbett Report website almost two and a half years ago, every friend who I showed it to, without fail, asked the same question. Aren't you afraid your name's going to be put on a list? The very same answer I gave at that time is the same answer I have today, and the same answer I'll have tomorrow. The idea that simply having a website like the Corbett Report would get my name put on a list is the very idea that I'm fighting against. If I'm living in a society where they are making lists of political dissenters and anyone who has a website like the Corbett Report and my name isn't on that list, then I'm probably doing something wrong. We have to be committed, we have to be aware, we have to be strong and resolute in our actions, and we have to practice the nonviolent non-cooperation, which is the only thing that will really threaten the strictures and structures of control. And to demonstrate that historical continuity that binds the heroes of the past with the heroes of the present, I leave you today with Lieutenant Aaron Watada quoting from Martin Luther King's speech against the war in Vietnam. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, inviting you to join me again next week for episode 108 of the Corbett Report, Peace Prizes for Warmongers. I leave with you tonight the immortal words of the late Martin Luther King Jr. Remember, he is a man so universally respected for his courage and wisdom. In a few days, excuse me, a few weeks ago, we honored his sacrifice and his legacy. This is from his speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. A time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy 
especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexed as they often do in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak for the poor of America who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home and death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as an American to the leaders of my own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. Thank you. <laughs>